dudes. What is up, my dudettes? It's the Casey's Corner Podcast broadcasting live on this Saturday afternoon. It is hazy. There's Saharan dust in the sky. It's hot as heck. We've got a jam-packed show coming your way on this late June. I can't believe I'm saying this late June afternoon. We've got two wonderful call-in guests. They've both been recorded, so I could tell you with certainty both of those interviews have gone tremendously. We've got former South Lafouche football coach, current Cecilia football coach, Dennis Skeens, who will be joining us. Coach Skeens is at Cecilia now, but more specifically, he and I go down a trip through memory lane to the 2012 high school football season. Feels like forever and ever ago, uh, but that was you know actually just eight years ago now where the Tarpons were undefeated. Undefeated season for South Lafouche. They've never had a season like that since. Um, Tarpons roll through the regular season 9-0, then have an unceremonious end to their regular season, losing in the first round of the postseason to Rustin. Coach Gaines and I talk about just about every single one of those games in the interview. He shares his time uh, or his thoughts about his time down the bayou, very fond memories of his time down the bayou. Um, Coach Gaines is a great guy, and uh, we, we miss him, and we, we certainly wish him well. And we continue to root on his Cecilia team, just like we continue to root on our Tarpons. But we take that stroll through memory lane, which we think people will enjoy. Then in the third segment of the show, we go to Nichols Golf uh, and have their head coach James Schilling on. James Schilling is a friend of mine. Um, We have some very interesting stories about uh, the things that Nichols Golf is having to deal with. They've got a lot of international players. Will their international players be able to return home safely with you know, COVID and travel restrictions? How are they recruiting? You know, not able to go to tournaments and different things that are happening over the summer. We also talked about Nichols uh, hiring you know, uh, Jonathan Terrell, their, their new athletic director. Coach Schilling and I spent some time talking about that and all that and more. That was another great interview. We talked about some PGA Tour and, and if you're an aspiring you know, amateur you know, hobby golfer like myself, Coach Schilling talks about equipment and some other things. So two very good interviews today uh, that we uh, we look forward to bringing to you guys. Um, the first segment of the show is going to be a short COVID update. Not going to take a Q&A because we did one on Wednesday and the situation hasn't changed a whole lot. And today's COVID update is going to be a little bit shorter than normal because the state didn't update their numbers today. Um, how's this? A planned power outage today on June the 27th. So there will be no numbers being updated. I don't know a whole lot about technology. I don't know a whole lot about a lot of things, but I do know that in the year 2020, it seems inefficient. It seems outdated. It seems not the way business should be done, that you have to plan to turn off the power for an entire day to, during a pandemic at that, to shut down your offices. But that's where we are with the Department of Health. No new COVID update today. They're going to report on Sunday, two days worth of numbers, which if those two days worth of numbers are similar to what we've been seeing in the last couple of days, we're going to go up by a scary high number of new cases because we've been in the 900, low 1,000 range here in the last couple of days. Um, so nervous times, you know, things continue to change, numbers continue to rise, and it's a nervous time as, you know, the, the quote-unquote second wave is, is upon us. Well, you know, the, 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 the smart aleck is, is inclined to say the first wave never quite ended all the way, but that's where we are right now as cases are surging in Texas and Florida and uh, Arizona's having it bad right now. We're seeing some spikes in some certain places and hopefully Louisiana is able to stay free of that and um, 
I think we will. There are some certain things that we're going to touch on in this segment that I think are going to um, lend to a little bit of positivity. We have 54,769 cases reported of COVID in the state. 3,077 people have died. Um, the numbers that you got to pay attention to if you listen to this show, you know that this is the, the, the most important things right now are not total cases. This pandemic is now three and a half months old. Uh, the vast majority, 80 plus percent, 85 plus percent of people who once had this have now healed of this or have perished from this. So the total numbers are always going to go up. The way I explained this to someone who was confused on social media, you, you know, if, if you make $50,000 a year, that's your total income. But if you only have $10,000 in, in the bank, that's your current income. That's the same thing here with COVID. We have 54,769 total cases, but we don't have that many active cases. We have far fewer active cases, somewhere in the number of eight, 9,000, if I had to guess. But the one thing that is troubling about new cases rising, and it's easy for a cynic to say, well, man, it's all the young people that are getting it now, the 20 through 29-year-olds. Those people aren't getting sick. Those people are not getting hospitalized. And while that's an accurate statement to make, and the data says that there have been 10,018 people ages 18 through 29 who have gotten COVID and only 11 of those people have died, and you do that math forward in you know three and a half months, there have been more people that age who have died of drug overdose, suicide, car wrecks, murders, and different things. So COVID is not the leading killer among our young people right now. But the problem with just saying all oh, the young people are getting it, so it's not a concern, is that the more people who are walking the streets carrying this, the more likely it's also that our most vulnerable segments of the population, our elderly, our 60 plus, our 70 plus pieces of the population are going to get sick and are ultimately not going to have as good of an outcome. So while it may be true that, yeah, young people are not at risk. And again, 11 people have died in the last three and a half months. That's a very insignificant number. And I don't mean to diminish someone dying because I know every one of those 11 people in that age group who died had a family. Uh, and had people that loved them and cared about them. But it's now been three and a half months. In that same three and a half months, we've lost people that age of other ailments, of other things. So it's a situation where, you know, it, it like I said, it's not that lethal. If you divide the 11 divided by 10,018, you'll see that's not even close to 1%. So you're far more likely to get killed by other things at that age group. But Again, there's the concern of you're also far more likely to give it to other people because the ratios show that every one person who gets COVID gives it to one other person. So if that 23-year-old gives it to their 58-year-old mother, then that's where you, you know the potential for problems arise. Um, the numbers that you got to track are hospitalizations and ventilator use as someone passes down the street on a four-wheeler, which tends to be a regular occurrence when we're recording this podcast. 700 people in Louisiana are in the hospital with COVID-related ailments. 73 people are on ventilators. So I don't know what to believe in terms of how severe this is because the hospitalizations number has gone up. It was in the mid-500s. Now it's back up to 700. But the ventilator use as the, at the time or as the hospitalizations have gone up, the ventilator use has gone down, meaning that our ventilator use had gotten back into the 80s, but this week have now dropped back twice from you know the 80s to I believe 78 at one time, then to 76, and then now down to 73. So there are more people hospitalized, but there are fewer people who are critically ill. So I don't know, maybe they're being a little more lenient in terms of hospitalizing people as a precaution because there's more room in the system. 
I don't know. We'll find out in the coming days and coming weeks, and especially as they continue to update those numbers. One thing that I will say, and this is this is good news, is that while, yes, we are continuing to see large caseloads, and are, while, yes, we are continuing to add big, big numbers every day of new COVID cases, a lot of that has to do with the fact that we are also testing a whole hell of a lot more people than what we, we once did. And if you look at the state's curve right now, uh, at one time we were seeing um, percent positive. Okay, I, I, I'm going to explain this because I don't think it's being explained well in other places. Whenever we talk about as a media percent positive, what, mean, what we mean by that is what percent of the total amount of tests come back positive, okay? So if you test 100 people and one of those 100 tests comes back positive, then your percent positive is 1, 1%. Um, why is this relevant? Well, it's, it's if you're doing random sampling and you're testing asymptomatic people, your percentage is a, a more accurate picture of how many total people are sick in a community. So you want that number to be lower. You want that number to go down and trend down. And in Louisiana, we've seen that. We've you know, we'd gotten into the area of the, you know, the, the seven and six percent range in May when we were doing much better. And in June, yeah, it has regressed a little bit. It's now towards the seven and eight percent range, but we're not seeing a drastic spike this week. Our numbers. Uh, well, let, let's go back to June 8th. June 8th, we had a six point seven percent positive rate. June 9th, we had a seven percent positive rate. June 10th, six point eight. June 11th, seven point one percent. June 12th, seven point one percent. June 13th, 11.5%. That wasn't a good day. June 14th, 11.4% positive. That wasn't a good day. But then since then, we've seen the numbers kind of go down. June 15th, 8%. June 16th, 8.1%. June 17th, 8.3%. And then from doing the math, you know, on my own at home, uh, it's been around that 8% range here in the last couple of days, even some days in the 7% range. So that's something that we're going to be keeping an eye on. Uh, to make sure that, that percent positive rate continues to stay down. Um, hospitalizations in the state, our region, uh, our region, region three, which comprises of Terrebonne Parish, Assumption Parish, Lafouche Parish, St. Mary Parish, St. Charles Parish, St. James Parish, and St. John the Baptist Parish. That's a seven parish radius. One patient is on a ventilator, 14 patients are hospitalized. Our region, Region 3, continues to, excuse my French, kick every other region's ass in terms of hospitalizations. Everyone else has numbers that are plateauing or are going up. Some regions have numbers that are going up rapidly. Our region is in a plateau and a trend of going down. Uh, for example, on June the 1st, we had 25 patients who were hospitalized. Now we're down to 14 on June the 1st. Um, you know, our ventilator use was different than what it was. And heck, a couple of days earlier in the week, we had zero patients who were on ventilators. So kudos to our doctors, our medical workers, our medical professionals, and everybody involved uh, for allowing our region to stay stable. Where are some of the troubled areas in Louisiana, you might ask? Acadiana is having a big problem right now. Acadiana is seeing a surge in hospitalizations. That's region four. Uh, region 5, Southwest Louisiana, they're having issues. Region 7, Shreveport, Bossier, they're having issues. Region 8, Monroe, they're having issues. The leaders right now are Region 3, us. Region 1, New Orleans. Region 9, the North Shore. So Regions 1, 3, and 9 are the regions in the state that are having the most significant progress. The other regions are kind of lagging a little bit behind. Uh, ICU bedding in Region 3, wonderful. We've got more bedding available than in use. Uh, so that continues to trend in the right direction, and we're continuing to do 
the right things to uh, try to make progress and try to get this thing out of the door. Will we see a phase three at the end of July? Um, I don't know, because whenever we started the continuation of phase two, our numbers have slightly gone up since then. So I don't know. But I also know that the numbers that you're seeing today are because of poor behavior from weeks ago. So as we've gotten more and more warnings and as more and more people have been told to do different things or to do things differently, maybe we'll see better results. Maybe we'll see better outcomes and maybe we'll see continued progress. So that's kind of your COVID update. I'm going to give you your total numbers for Lafouche Parish and then we'll kind of put a bow on it, wrap it up. Um, Things are continuing to be a kind of a nervous period, but not a panic period. Lafouche Parish has 1,071 COVID cases and Lafouche Parish has 85 people who have died from the pandemic. Our total numbers of tests equal 13,000. So let's see, we're going to do some real quick math here. If you multiply 1,071 cases into, which is close to 13,100 tests, you see, whoop, I messed up there, typed in a wrong number. 1071 divided by 13100 you get a percent positive rate that is very good so we're right on average with the state and we're not seeing any type of trending in the wrong direction so that's great news as Lafouche Parish continues to fight this thing I've got um, theories as to why our region may be doing better than others I have theories as to why New Orleans may be doing better than others Um, I think we have closer to herd immunity than people realize Um, I think that we were hit very heavily specifically on this bayou in january and february uh by a lot of this talk to people that you know in the neighborhood talk to people that you are friends with and ask them if they had someone in their household who had respiratory problems in the early winter ask them if they had respiratory problems in the early spring every single person just about that i know either has dealt with it or knew someone who dealt with it and i go back to when girls basketball, South Lafouche girls basketball was in the heat of their playoff chase, everybody I knew was sick at that time, myself included. Um, and we were all testing negative for the flu. We were all testing negative for strep. But we had this nagging cough and sharpness of breath. And we knew about COVID at the time, but we didn't have any testing. And they were telling you that if you didn't go to Asia, then you weren't at risk. And I don't know. I just got a feeling that if we did roundabout antibody test on everybody, we would be absolutely shocked at what the numbers would find. And uh, I guess, you know, we may never know. I guess only God knows. But I, I just have that sneaky feeling that our curve here in Region 3 and New Orleans's curve, Region 1, are staying flatter than other areas because we were hit so hard that we're closer to herd immunity than what other people realize. Let's catch a quick commercial break. When we get back, we are going to go to Cecilia. We're making a road trip West, Laf- West Lafayette, West Louisiana, going out to the Lafayette region. Cecilia High School football coach Dennis Gaines will be on the line. Wonderful stroll through memory lane. We had such a great time talking about the 2012 South Lafouche football season. So after Coach Gaines, then we'll have Coach James Schilling, and then we'll wrap up with a sports update. There's actually a lot going on in the world of sports for the first time in a while. So we've got a busy episode of the Casey's Corner podcast. Hope you guys uh, enjoy. Hope you guys enjoy your weekend and go find us on iTunes. Subscribe. Do all the things that we've been coaching you to do. Quick commercial break, then Coach Gaines out of this break on LafoucheGazette.com. Did you know that on LafoucheGazette.com we generate 1 million page views per month? Yes, that's not a typo. That's not me reading it wrong. That's not me selling you a bill of goods. 
we generate 1 million page views per month. That's 1 million times someone is on our website clicking their mouse and saying, hey, I want to read that. Did you know that our website, LaFouchegazette.com, generates more than 200,000 individual users per month? There's 97,000 people in Lafouche Parish. We generate 200,000 viewers per month. We reach just about every single household in Lafouche Parish and even beyond. Contact us today for advertising and sales rates. If you want to get your business seen in a tough economic time, I promise you, if you invest in LafoucheGazette.com, your ad is going to be seen, and it's going to be seen by every single person in Lafouche Parish. Contact us today and get involved. 985-693-7229. Help us help you. We're all in this together. We're all Lafouche strong. Hi, this is professional basketball player Randy Brown. Keep listening to Casey's Corner Podcast on LaFoucheGazette.com. It's the Casey's Corner Podcast here on LaFoucheGazette.com. Joining us now, one of my good buddies, former South LaFouche head football coach, current Cecilia football coach, Dennis Gaines. Coach Gaines, how are you, man? I'm doing great, man. Trying to adjust to the set of crazy time, but uh, as always, good to talk to you. Absolutely, my friend. And we're going to talk a little bit about the wonderful uh, 2012 South LaFouche football season. But before we do that, how's life at Cecilia? I know you've been there a while and had some, you know, some pretty good success, but... Now we're in such an interesting time with the pandemic and everything like that. So how are things out there in, in West Louisiana for you right now, man? I know that if you look at some of the maps and everything, you guys are one of the areas that's been hardest hit here in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we've lucky enough that we haven't had any kids uh, test positive. So, we've you know, we've kind of been doing workouts full speed ahead uh, with the obvious provisions that we need to take, you know. But uh, the kids are, I mean, it's, it's great. I think we've, it took a little while here to get the culture to where it needed to be, but it is 100% there now. And we're really excited about this group. Uh, you know, though not the ta- most talented, but they are, their mentality and their work ethic uh, is is at the top. So we're really excited to coach this team. And we're just hoping we have a season, man. <laughs> you know, uh, if, it, if it keeps going the wrong way, I'm afraid we won't, but we'll see. Would you be in favor of doing the old switcheroo where you guys would play in the spring and the other sports, you know, from the spring would play in the fall? Would you be in favor of that? And I hate the idea just because I just because it's so different. But if that was the last ditch, you know, thing, then yeah, absolutely. I'd rather play it, you know, if the alternative is not playing a whole season or, you know, only playing half a season or then yeah, I would I would absolutely be for it. But um you know, I didn't like the idea when I first heard it, but I'm also a guy who believes, which I'm probably wrong, but I'm a guy who believes let's do herd immunity. Let's just all get it and get over it. And, you know, because I think it's going to be impossible to, to read certain guidelines during a football season. You know, if a kid tests positive and does the whole team shut down or does, does just he quarantine or like, how do we work it? You know, so because uh, I think it's uh, irresponsible to believe that no kid is going to get it during the football season. So we, we would have to obviously uh, have some provisions in place. 
I'm with you. So um, you guys are now preparing for the 2020 season. I'm going to ask you to go back in the way back machine to the 2012 season. It was your first season at South Lafouche. You're still a young guy, but you were a really young guy then, you know, moving down the by and, and taking over that program. And um, going in and whenever you guys, you know, started hitting the the, the summer camps and, and the off season and everything, obviously it ended up being a wonderful year. Uh, but did you kind of have an inkling that, hey, you know, we've got something special here? Yeah, there there was a point in time where I thought we did, but man, the, look, here's the two things I knew going into that situation. It, you know, number one, I didn't know what I was doing, and number two, <laughs> everybody had to believe that I knew what I was doing. So, like when coming in, I'm, I had had a little success as a coordinator in at Bell Chase in New Orleans, uh, but as far as to to think that I knew the answers to everything. Um, you know, well, that was absurd, but I also knew we weren't going to be successful if they didn't believe in me and that's coaches included, you know? So kind of when I came in, I was so paranoid, you know, uh, the big things I was paranoid about was just the organizational stuff, but then also like special teams, you know, I was, I don't know why, but I was just nervous about special teams. And when we started, we started practicing special teams as soon as I got there, cause I was so nervous about it. Uh, ended up being a really, really strong part of our team. So maybe I should be worrying about that more now. I don't know. But <laughs> at the time, I, it scared to death. I mean, because I'd never run special teams, and I didn't know what coaches we had. and it, it, Were any of them good at the special teams part? So I knew I was going to have to learn it. But uh, then, you know, the other thing was organizational stuff. But to answer your question, I know I'm taking the long the long route to answer it. But, uh, yeah, there there was a point where I, I was like, man, I think we're going to be pretty good. But – I still didn't know, you know, I was, I, I was hoping we were going to be good, but I, I, I wasn't sure because I'd never been in five a, I'd never played a lot of the teams we were playing and I'd never been a head coach. So, uh, you know, it, it was one of those things where it was just full speed ahead all the time. It was stay on point, stay on message. This is the right way to do it. Even if I'm not sure if it's the right way, you got to believe it's the right way to do it. And, and it ended up, you know, ended up being pretty good when I knew we were going to be good, it was, you know, somewhere after the second, third game, I was like, okay, I think we got something. Very good. Now, I don't remember this, and I'm going to kind of go through the schedule with you game by game here. I don't remember this. You guys were slated for Destran the first game. What happened? I see cancel. Was there like a storm or something? I don't remember what happened. Yeah, it was a hurricane. We lost it to a hurricane, and that was one we felt really, really confident in. Uh, again, not knowing what we were going to be, but just watching the tape, we kind of felt like we could take advantage of a couple of things. Now, look, this is Robichaud's first year back, and I think he's one of the best ones that, that does that job. But uh, at the time, the, the talent wasn't where it is today or, you know, back then or even today. You know, so <clears throat> there were some definite weak spots where we, we didn't feel like we had very many, and we felt like they had uh, a handful that we could take advantage of. But we did lose it to the Storm. Uh I'm not going to sit here and say we, we would have won that game 100%. I mean, Robichaud does a really good job. So, uh, But uh, we felt really good about it. So you get to the first game, and I do remember this, making the long road trip out to Plaquemine, and no one kind of knows what to expect. It was a team that was kind of hit or miss the year before, and you guys unveil this offense that is up-tempo, and you guys run through them like Swiss cheese, score 63 points, were doing whatever you wanted to do. 
Uh, talk us through your first game as a head coach, man. And I'm sure it had to be a great feeling to go on the road, a long road trip against a good, athletic, talented football team and just hammer them. Yeah, it was. Well, you know, and uh, again, I, I made a lot of mistakes that year. One of them was not getting a, a charter bus to go to that game. I mean, we're just <laughs> sitting on old yellow, uh, sweating our butts off the whole way over there. You know, that made me nervous. I, I told every kid, this is the one thing I remember, I told every single kid, you better not forget, you better make sure, dress yourself in your mind. Make sure you have a helmet. Don't be the one guy that shows up without a helmet or whatever. Because it was our first game and it was on the road. Well, so we all get on there halfway down i realized i didn't bring my my coaching pants i brought my polo but i was wearing just regular shorts so our bus driver actually went and uh dropped those off and then went to a, a store and bought me a pair of pants so i was you know I, to talk about not knowing uh i'm telling the kids to be prepared and i wasn't prepared but uh now going in that game they're a really good football team uh we had gone watch them play the week before because they did not lose their game uh and really, really strong. That that where we kind of had them was they had a lot of guys going both ways, and we we did not. So uh, I think we kind of took over in the second half. It was really tight at halftime, and we might have been up by a seven. But I mean, it, in no way did we feel like we were owning the game. But then we just kind of came out second half, <clears throat> and uh, I know Trayvon had a, a, a huge game. Kobe had a huge game. Just a uh, really good effort uh, offensively, defensively kind of came along eventually but uh we didn't start about so hot second game short week going out to the city playing john aired i remember this one vividly i'll never forget this one you guys were so snake bitten in that game and then at the end you get the big play at the end the goal line stand and seal the win and it started to feel like okay the plaquemine game yeah you guys were rolling and, and and you know separated yourself in the second half it started to feel like after watching your guys uh, have a game that they could have easily lost, but that they pulled victory out of the jaws of defeat. That's when you kind of start to see that character of, hey, maybe this team's on to something a little bit. Talk to us about that wild and crazy night out in the city against John Eric. Well, it was a talented football team. Uh, they, they, I think that it was a, the head coach's first year. He hadn't quite turned it around yet, but uh, they're a talented football team, and, and we knew uh, it was going to be a struggle. Again, I think I put us on, I don't know if I did charters, but I think I put us on yellows again. Uh, so I, I don't know what I was thinking, but anyway, we got down there and, uh, it was such a, it was such a back and forth game, you know, uh, but the one thing I knew when we made the goal, goal line stand at the end, I didn't know what it meant, but I knew it meant something. I knew it was important. I knew that we were going to be a lot better because we had done it one time. You know, we had, we had kind of, that was the first adversity that we were able to overcome, uh, as a team. And I think that's when, everybody started believing including me uh you know just really started believing in what we were doing and that we were doing it the right way because no matter how many mistakes we made in that game it was early in the season you know what was important was that we didn't stop fighting even to the very very end nobody gave up uh when it looked like we we didn't have a chance to win it uh we came kind of came out of there so uh i knew it was big for the team and just for beliefs I have no recollection of this next game against Helen Cox. You guys win fifty six to thirty five shootout ball game. What do you what do you remember about that one? That's one that doesn't stand out to me at all. Uh, I remember they had a big quarterback. Uh, I don't, I can't remember everything. I I was familiar with Helen Cox, uh, and I, uh, I the one thing I do remember is they had a very a huge tendency. I don't remember what it was, but we found a tendency, and and our staff got really good at this over the year was. We found out we were able to tell pass and run. 
you know, I would tell coaches, look, start looking at the film. I want to know, is there anything on there that's going to tell us pass or run? Because if, if we can find that, we're at a major uh, advantage, you know. And over the years there, we we found more than at any other place I've been at. Um, but I know at that game, in that game, we knew pass or run before the ball was snapped every single time. Uh, which obviously we, we were a formation check defense, so we would check it. You know, we would check off when we saw it was a pass. We would check to this covers this defense when we saw it was a run. We're going to check to this, and it was just kind of. Uh, I think the kids went in confident after the week before, and then kind of. I mean, you go in and you know you know what they're going to do. As a player, it's it's easy to get comfortable. Now we're going to continue to to you know pick through the schedule here, but one thing that was so different about this team, coaches. South Lafourche teams in years past, big power line, you know, power running game, and you guys did a lot of that too. But man, you had some skill guys on the edges that that were college level players. You guys were doing things that this school was not familiar with seeing in terms of the the hurry up and the tempo offense. And you inherited a group that had some fantastic playmakers. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you talk about a young coach coming into a situation, and I mean. Like I said, I didn't know early what what was going to happen, but I knew we had players, and I knew we had we had talent uh, in some areas. It was the biggest offensive line I've ever uh, to date ever been a part of uh, or ever had. And you know, we came in, uh, and and I don't know why I was so dead set on running tempo, but I mean, uh, I came in, and, and that was one thing I told Jared Landrum, our, our really good offensive coordinator. Like, I want us snapping the ball as soon as they said it. And, I mean, we practiced it and practiced it and practiced it and got really, really good at it. Um, but, but yeah, no, it, but the reason we were, we were able to be so good at it is that we had four, four guys who could play ball on the outside. You know, you got receivers. Uh, we had, you know, Tate Williams, who's just uh, a great running back, had a ton of speed. So, and we had a huge offensive line. It was kind of a recipe. I mean, and Kobe was turning out to be a really, really good quarterback. Uh, so man, it was just kind of like an, you know, it's kind of all happened. It was a perfect storm because uh, you can't run a and you can't run a hurry up offense like that if you don't have guys that will challenge you on the outside. And, and you know, the next year we kind of realized that, which is why we had to get out of the hurry up, just because we didn't have the guys on the outside anymore to to, to run that offense. Because you know, when you don't have those guys, you can go zero coverage, put a bunch of people in the box, and then you're in trouble. But, uh, no, we had it We had it that year, and, and that's why we were so successful. Early in the season, uh, you, you guys were in a lot of these shutout, shootout games where some of the, the points that the other teams were scoring were kind of garbage time stuff. But as you get to week five, mm-hmm. taking on Terrebonne and Westgate, you win 37-7 to against Terrebonne, then 24-7 to against Westgate. Start to see that defense develop a little bit and start to play better ball, and I know that as a defensive guy, I'm sure that made you very happy to see. Yeah, it started to click somewhere in there. I mean, I know uh, it, it was a different way to play defense than the coaches had seen before and the uh, the players certainly had seen before just because it was unorthodox. It still is today the way I run it, but it's it's all based off of tendencies and, and you know, taking advantage of certain situations, not necessarily being the most sound, but uh, taking away what they do well and, they, they really started to pick that up. And we had, and again, we had really good players. I mean, we had really good players. You talk about Peyton Gidry and Mike. Uh, we had, you know, we had Braxton Acosta. We had Blackwell. We had Trayvon. We had Nori. I mean, Chris Berry. It goes on. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to leave somebody out, I know. But these guys were uber talented, you know, 
very, very talented. And uh, once they started to realize what I was trying to get them to see every week, I mean, it just started clicking, and it, and it started clicking big. Maybe the game of the season, week seven, you guys are undefeated, traveling to take on New Iberia, who is supposedly the other power in the district. You go on the road. It's a wild and crazy game. You guys storm out, and then they kind of come back, and then you take it away at the end. There are going to be nights that I'm always going to remember in my journalistic career. That one is always going to be a game that I'm going to remember. You guys win 28-26 to in one of the wildest games that I've ever seen. Yeah, it was tough about that one. I, I Shoot, right? I was the reason they even came back. I mean, I'm looking back at some of the dumb things I've done. You know, we, we get all over them right away. I mean, we go in 20-something to three or something. I don't even remember. But, you know, at halftime, I told Jared to slow it down. Let's eat clock. Well, that's not what we did. That's not how we played. You know, our kids weren't used to huddling and then going and let's, let's wait and then we'll snap it. And man, it just got us out of rhythm. We went two series doing it that way. And then I told Jared, man, just go back, go back. Let's, let's speed it up again. But by that point, we were kind of out of sync and they were starting to get some confidence. So we kind of held on for dear life there. Uh, but it, again, it was one of those things where I think there was no doubt you know, leaving that ball game that we were the better team. Uh, but again, we kind of, it kind of worked in our advantage because we won another close one versus a really, really talented team. And, uh, we felt like we were better than them. So, uh, it was kind of a, a good situation for us. And it was a good teaching moment, you know, to where, Hey, look, you never know. <laughs> we're up all these points, but you have no idea. Like we've got to keep playing hard. Uh, but that was a big one, man. I think for, you know, that's when I started thinking, okay, we, we might win all of them. You know, we might win every one of them because I knew they were really, really good and they were really well coached. And, and so we're, you know, that was huge for us and certainly for me personally. Go play Central Lafouche on the road, you know, big cross parish rival. Uh, you smother them 35 to three. It was a game that was, you know, very physical, very hard fought, but also very one sided. I know that it had to feel good for the boys, uh, for, and, and, you know, for you guys as a coaching staff to go out and beat those boys. Yeah, that was a, the only one that the only time we played them where I felt like it wasn't in doubt at all. Uh, and they were in the middle of a co- like there were some weird coaching things that were going on. I I think he stepped down after that. I don't know, remember everything with the coach, but I remember before Keith got there, uh, Keith did a really good job with them. But they uh, at that time just kind of weren't weren't ready. And we were starting to do this thing that I had seen a hundred times before. Uh, when I was at Turlings and my last year at Belchase where it was starting to get to where the other team didn't think they were going to win before we kicked off. Yeah. And, and, you know, and just because it was, we were so explosive and, oh, you know, as coaches, all you see is your, your flaws and what you got to get better at. But what other teams are watching, you know, I'm talking about players. Is, wow. Look how explosive, look how fast they are. Look how many points they scored, you know, you look how physical their defense is, how they run to the football, all that thing. And I think a lot of times, and I think Central was one of those games where that one was won before kickoff. Uh, and I don't say that in an arrogance. I just say that, you know, teenage kids sometimes will look across the field during warmups and just not believe, you know, and I've certainly been on the other side of that. So, but yeah, that was, that was a time that was kind of starting to happen. No doubt. You take on HL Bourgeois at home senior night. Wallop those guys 55 to 8. That was a you know lopsided matchup athletically and physically. Then you get week 10, Thibodeau go on the road again, 41 to 14. Thibodeau had some athletes, they were pretty gifted. Your final, you know, postseason, pre-postseason tune-up, 
How do you think you guys played against Thibodeau in Week Ten? You know, Thibodeau was was that was that was a tough game. I know it doesn't look like it, uh, but they were so good, man. And 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 again, I think we benefited a little bit of them wondering if they could win. You know, once they realized they could play with us at some point, and we were, you know, it was not an easy game. You know, uh, I remember I remember Braxton having to rip the ball out of a, uh, the running back's hands, like on the three yard line. And just returning it, you know, I don't know how far he went with it, but but like that, that was a major turning point. Um, but you know, I guess you don't think of that like at the time. You just know that it, we had to win. We needed to win to finish this thing off the right way and, get, and have a great attitude going into the playoffs. But uh, you know, yeah, it obviously felt great. It obviously felt great. So you guys get into the postseason, the number eight seed in Class Five A. Before we talk about the Rustin game, were you guys a little bit surprised? I mean, you're undefeated in 5A, beating some pretty quality opponents, and weren't even, you know, in the the the, the top four, top five, get the eighth seed. Were you kind of surprised to be seated that low? No, we we knew we knew. You know, I normally don't watch PowerPoints because I just I don't I don't know. It's kind of like the stock market. Just don't. I will look at it at the end, <laughs> you know. But uh, they they uh, you know, I knew the teams we were playing like it what ended up having this, especially the uh pre like the pre district schedule, they didn't win a bunch of games and it's a PowerPoint league now. So uh I knew we weren't gonna be as high as our record showed, but I, I still felt really, really confident uh going in going into the playoffs. You you take on Rustin, uh you'd seen a bunch of film and everything. I'm sure you'd done a ton of homework on them. Did you kind of have an inkling that, you know, hey, this is a pretty talented 25 seed? Uh, obviously, it ended up being a, a tougher game than, than many expected. Did you have an inkling that that they were capable of coming down the bye and doing what they did? Oh, I knew they could. I knew they could. They, they had uh, lost their quarterback. I think mean, they started out like 0-4 or something. Uh, and their quarterback kind of came back. And then I think they had an, their tight end came back at some point, And then their running back came back. So all of these guys they didn't have at the beginning – season and they really really ended finished strong i think they were like six and four but the the thing that really bothered me and looking back is i wish i could have avoided this from happening but i don't know if i could have you know when you're in a small town like everybody's excited and that's great that's Mm -hmm. awesome you know it, it we started i mean we started putting up a state championship banner almost you know it was like we wanted I had to, I had to convince my principal, we do not want to have a pep rally, you know, outside on Thursday, the night before the game with all the, like, you know, we, we need to, like, we need to focus on winning this football game. But we did a bunch of stuff and the kids were getting so much praise and we had a horrible week of practice. I mean, we were, I mean, by, by Wednesday, which is our last day at work, we were not in tune. We were not in sync and I had a horrible feeling going into it, it it was almost like the kids just figured we would win because we've won every other game but they didn't realize like well we won all those games because we worked so hard and i'm not saying the kids didn't work hard i'm just saying the focus wasn't there that was there the other nine weeks you know and uh and obviously it showed in the game and it, it kind of bit us in the butt get punched in the mouth early in that game fall behind and i remember telling someone and obviously this is impossible to we'll never know but i remember telling someone if there were a fifth quarter, we were about ready to bust the seams open. But just, you just kind of feel like, you know, hey, man, by the time the kids kind of tasted their own blood and realized what was happening, it was over with? No, I, I think uh, – actually, I think they got punched in the mouth. And then once they 
and then that stunned them for a little bit. But then, like you said, they realized, wait a second, we're better than them. And they started playing again. And I think if we don't, it's weird, it's weird to say because the score wasn't, you know, it looked different at the end. But uh, we were making a drive, I think, to go and tie. And we fumbled it. I mean, we're moving it. I mean, at this point, we're moving the ball. And, and I think we fumbled somewhere around the 40-yard line going in. And kind of that that was when, like, the kind of the last of the wind came out of us, you know. And, and, and you know, we weren't going to be able to come back. So it was uh, – it was one of those situations where, you know, if we'd have played the, the first half like we played the second half, then, you know, we'd have won the football game. I have no doubt. I mean, we were a better football team. We just weren't focused. And I, I made some mistakes, obviously, uh, going into that one. There was a lot of things I could have done better, including, you know, it's my job to get the kids focused, you know, and I, obviously I didn't do a great job of that. But um, but it was still ended up being a great season. And, and you know, it kind of built helped build uh, you know the seasons to follow so what do you tell the guys after the game you had a big senior group you had a lot of successful all district you know all state caliber players guys who went off to the next level and i know you're super duper proud of that team and always will be on the other hand there's the disappointment of losing in the first round so what do you tell that group and then also it's going to be forever a special season for you because it's forever going to be your first season as a head coach what are you looking at you know whenever you're looking those guys in the eyes at the end of the game in the locker room or even in the days that follow it, you know, on campus at school, what are you telling those kids to make sure they keep their chins up? You know, every year, that one in particular, because it's my first year, but every year, if you don't win the last one, you're going to be hurting and it's going to be emotional because you're on a journey. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. You know, you become so close and the effort and time you put in, you're on this journey. You're, you're pretty much mentally exhausted, physically exhausted by the time you even get there. Uh, and when it's all over, it just kind of stops, you know, and, and, and it's, it's just difficult. It's difficult to get sentences out without kind of crying. And it, you know, it's because it means so much to them and it means so much to us. Um, I think I told them what, what Sonny Chaponce used to say all the time when I was over at Turling as the head coach of Turling, who was so good and just say, you know, if it, if it doesn't hurt, you know, the reason it hurts right now is because you care so much and, and it should hurt. But the sun's going to rise tomorrow. You're going to be able to move on. And at some point, you're going to realize, hey, we did something pretty special here. Um, you know, we didn't win the last game, which is what everybody is trying to do. But we uh, we had a great season. Uh, and, and we accomplished a lot of things. And we really did. Um, but, of course, that's, you know, personally going down. You know, that's going to go down as a bittersweet season. You know, it was a great season. But, you know, we, we lost first round. So, uh that makes it difficult even right now talking about it makes it a little difficult to be honest with you so your time at South Foo several seasons several postseason appearances you guys had a you know very highly successful run and I know you know going to Cecilia that's closer to home and you know different situation and, and I understand all those reasons but at the end of the day I'm sure it had to be difficult to pull the trigger and say hey man I'm gonna do this because I know you genuinely liked the area and you genuinely liked the kids no, I loved, I loved leaving South Lafourche was the hardest move I've ever had to make. And I got to tell you, you know, even as, as early as last year, I was regretting, you know, but, uh, it, it was a, it was a situation where, you know, I loved the school. I loved the kids. I loved, uh, the administration, the athletic, I mean, everything was awesome. Um, but, in the end, 
Ponce, who is now currently the Turlings head coach, was going to be our offensive coordinator, and I knew he was really good. And I, I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn more and be in a situation where I could, uh, you know, kind of get, you know, grow more as a head coach. And not that I couldn't have done that itself, but uh, I just saw an opportunity in, in Cecilia and ended up taking it. But it was very difficult. I told them no four times. You know, they they. <laughs> They asked me, and I told them no. I'm like, look, y'all, this is, I'm happy here. Like, I'm good. It's too late in the season. You know, it's already, it was April at the time. But uh, they kind of were very persistent and kind of stuck with it. And then it just turned into, uh, you know, a decision that I had to make. And, and I made it. And it was a tough one, a very emotional one, for sure. I'm sure, because I know I'm guilty of this as well. On Friday nights, I come in and I check the Cecilia score. I'm sure after you're getting over the sting of defeat or the, the thrill of victory, I'm sure you're doing the same and are peeking in on the Tarpons from time to time, aren't you? Oh, every year. Every, every week, every season. Uh, look, it, it, they gave me my first shot you know, to, to do this thing, and they believed in me and all the way to the end. Um, like no one else had. I mean, they will. I'll always be a Tarpon. I will always... Love those kids. Love those coaches. I mean, I think about the coaches, uh, you know, to Tommy and Jared and Scott and, you know, and Thad. And it just goes on and on and on. Bill, I mean, those guys were so good. They were so good. And they were not only good, but they were great people. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'll always remember South Lafouche fondly. You always want to win more games. And I, we did have a season in there where we weren't very good that third year. But, uh, but even that year, I was so proud of the kids because – you know, we, we weren't really that talented that year, <laughs> but we, we probably won a few we shouldn't have won. But, uh, yeah, it, it's certainly difficult. When I think about South Lafouche, I think fondly of it, and I always will. Well, Coach, we, we thank you so much, and we wanted to take a little trip down memory lane. I know a lot of our listeners enjoy that. We're going to be following you guys at Cecilia. Very hopeful that you guys are going to have a wonderful season, and uh, we're going to do this again soon, okay? All right. Sounds good, Casey. I appreciate you having me. Yes, sir. Take care, brother. I was former South Lafouche football coach Dennis Skeens joining us. What an interview. We thank him so much for his time. Let's catch a quick commercial break. James Schilling with Nichols Golf will be joining us out of this break. It's the Casey's Corner Podcast on LafoucheGazette.com. We'll be right back after this. So today I come to you guys with some fantastic news. At a time in news media where everyone is shrinking their coverage, Everyone is putting up paywalls so that you have to pay for your coverage. Everybody is printing fewer copies of their paper and finding good, reliable news is harder than ever. We at the Lafouche Gazette are going the opposite direction. Today, I'm proud to announce that instead of shrinking the number of papers that we print, we're expanding our coverage and we're expanding our coverage area. We're now going to have boxes in Northern Lafouche, in the Northern Raceland communities, in the St. Charles communities, and in the Thibodeau community. We're going to be doing the best that we can to reach every single household in Lafouche Parish and every single person who wants access to our newspaper in the physical copy and online will be able to get that. So thank you guys so much, very much from the bottom of my heart. And I know I speak on behalf of everyone on our team. Thank you so much for allowing this to happen and keep reading. We are Lafouche Strong 100% of the time. Boys with the 
I'm a strength. Ain't nobody man enough to feel the pain. And you can be next. You better give respect. Cause ain't nobody breaking this redneck. It's the Casey's Corner Podcast here on LaFoucheGazette.com. Joining us now, the Nichols Golf Coach, Coach James Schilling. Coach, how are you, man? Doing well, Casey. Great to be on your podcast. Um, listen to it quite frequently, so it's uh, really nice to be on. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. And it's uh, it's an interesting time in the world, man. You guys are uh, wanting to, to play some collegiate golf. That's all been shut down. I mean, obviously, it's summertime anyway, but... You're telling me that, you know, some of your recruiting and everything is shut down. And what are some of the things that are going on with Nichols Golf, man? It sounds like it's just kind of a, a wait and see period for you guys. Wait and see, uh, very similar to uh, across all of Nichols athletics right now. The recruiting landscape has totally changed in that uh, actually yesterday, like we had a, a notice from the NCAA that the uh, dead period has been extended through the end of August. So we were hoping that it would open back up August 1st. So all the teams that were able to could get back out on the road, do some recruiting. And unfortunately, it's been extended again. So, you know, typically right now, the Future Masters is going on, which is a large junior golf tournament in Dalton, Alabama. It's gone on for years. Today, on this Friday, the 26th, um, will be the the 36 hole cut, and then it typically moves on. So, all of the Division One coaches and Division Two, for that matter, are typically at that event. You know, guys from you know, LSU, Auburn, down to the Southland level, Division Two schools. We don't have that many in this state, but you have them in Florida, West Florida, stuff like that, and over to Georgia. It's an area for all the coaches to come together, and unfortunately, that's on hold. So we're we're doing like everyone else. We're doing a lot more online. We're following scores online. And we're, we've had to adjust our model and how we do recruit and how we evaluate players at this time. That was the next question I was going to ask you is, okay, it's one thing to see on a computer screen that a kid shot a 73, but it's another thing to see in person and, you know, see that, oh, well, he could have maybe shot a 66 if he would have made a couple of sharp putts. And, like, without being able to see it with your own eyes, is how is that different? And, you know, I guess uh, there are probably some pros and some cons, so talk us through that. I guess the pros are that you're still able, you know, unlike, you know, years back when I was playing, you know, 25 years ago, you're able to follow everything online. So that is a positive, but you do miss out on how a player handles himself. How does he react if he gets a bad break? Uh, if he has a lost ball or an unfortunate penalty event, how does he respond from that? I may see a double bogey on a par four, a six on a on a par four. I don't know why that happened. I don't know how it happened. I don't know if he made the mistake or if it was something that maybe possibly happened to him. I would like to know those things to then to see, well, how does that young man respond from that? If he truly had a bad break and then he makes two birdies in the next three holes, that's the type of character that you're looking for. You know, that's the type of person that you want on your team, a mature person that's going to be able to handle some adversity. Um, Does he make a double bogey and he just isn't playing well and then he bogeys three out of the next four holes? 
is he just off that day or has he kind of shut things down because he felt like something unfair happened to him? You know, so that's those are the things that you miss out when you're not there in person, able to watch the players, watch how they're reacting. You know, I've always said this, the type of players that I like, ideally you would like to not let the players know what time you're going to be there. You just show up and hopefully if you can watch them say from a distance, if it's two, 300 yards, maybe even a hole over. Hopefully, I don't know if the person is eight over par or eight under par because they're just that steady. You know, and that's, that's ideally what you're looking for. Now, was I that mature at all times at that age when you're growing up? No, I mean, <laughs> none of us are, you know, but, um, that's ideally what you're looking for. Someone that doesn't get that flustered because, you know, college golf is not professional golf. College golf is 36 whole days. So you're, you know, leaving it the hotel at 530 in the morning and you're playing 36 holes and then you're done. You eat, you have a team meeting, you go to bed and then you get up again and then you play 18 and then you're heading back home and then there's academics waiting on you and studies and makeup tests and all these other things. So college golf is, while the game is the same, we're still playing golf, but it's a lot more about being an athlete, taking care of yourself. Whereas, you know, professional golf is, you don't have studies to do. Uh, you don't have uh, lab assignments to make up. You don't have, you know, all these other things that are weighing on you and, and your time demands are much more spaced out. You have time to get up. You have time to practice about the only variables that you have in professional golf at any level is basically the weather. Sure. And you got, um, you know, most of your guys are from all over the globe. And, and do you have those guys currently in Louisiana? Are they outside of Louisiana and back at home? And I guess the next part of that question is if anybody is at home, are there concerns about potentially getting them back here before the start of the school year with some of the travel restrictions and different things of that sort? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Casey. You know, right now it's a very fluid situation um, across the U.S. right now. Uh, you know, I think I think part of the, in my opinion, I think part of the problem that as a society that we're having is even the experts that you see on TV, they really don't know. This is, I, I'm not, they know what this is, but they don't know how it's going to play out. And that's what's so, uh, at this point, unnerving for all of us, no matter what you do, no matter what, uh, no matter what your career is in, no matter what line of work you have, basically, regardless of your age as well, we don't know at this time how this is all going to shake out. When there's a vaccine, which there will be, when's that going to be? How will it be implemented? Um, do we don't know at this time if people if people get infected are they immune to getting infected again is there different strains you know all things by men and women that are much more intelligent than i am if they don't have the answers i think that's kind of what's unsettling so when you tie that into trying to get players back on campus i've been in constant contact with my players how are things looking? What's the schedule like, Coach? Do you have the schedule set? Our schedule is set for fall and spring golf. We're ready to roll. We're ready to go. We just have to see, as we get closer to this, how the travel restrictions and how we're going to handle things here on campus with housing not only the students, 
the student athletes, but with the student body in general and how all of this is going to intertwine. It's a big puzzle right now, not just at Nichols. It's a big puzzle for all of us. And we're trying to put the pieces to be- together as best we can. But it's difficult when you don't know exactly how everything's going to fit together and what the timelines truly are. Yeah, I can't even imagine. And at Nichols, you guys have a new athletic director. JT's coming in. A great guy. I've known him for a while. Uh, everyone says wonderful things. Uh, what are your thoughts about the new AD coming in? And what are some of the, the, the conversations you've had with him about enhancing Nichols golf? I think it's a home run higher. Uh, bottom line, without a doubt. We have a we have a, a young man that is truly invested in the wellness of Nichols State University. So when I say it's a home run, that's why I say that. He has the amount of passion and energy and the connections that we need throughout the Bayou region to get us to the next level. I know he can do it. Um, we've had excellent athletic directors in the past. Matt Rohn did a phenomenal job kind of moving things to a different level, if you will, whenever he was here. Unfortunately, this was not his home. And there's nothing wrong with the way that he handled things to go back to an area that he's more familiar with. This is Jonathan Terrell's home. This is JT's home. This is a place that he wants to be. This is not a stepping stone for him. He is extremely proud to be the athletics director at Nichols. So when you put all those things together, um, I think he's going to work with the coaches, in my opinion, to put us in a position to be successful. That's what any coach wants. Give me the tools to put you in a in a in a position. Any job is like that, Casey. You want to be in a position where you can be successful. We may not have everything we want, but can we get some of the things that we need to really get us over to the next level? Let's talk about this. We're close. We've had NCAA, NCAA appearances. Okay, in football. Women's basketball, we've had conference championships with softball. Men's basketball has won the league. In golf, we've had an NCAA appearance and a conference champion. So we've shown in the past, in the recent years, that we've been able to do this, and we've been able to compete very well within our league. Perhaps this stability that we have now with JT will be the next piece to kind of give us sustained academic excellence not just a flash in the pan you need to do it year in and year out Casey you know that absolutely no doubt about it now we like to talk a lot of PGA Tour here on the show as as you're probably well aware and I've been watching the events in the last couple of weeks um, and one of the things we talked about with Josh Fullove a couple of episodes ago is the fact that there are going to be so many major championships in the next 12 months who are some guys? You know, it's very easy for us to sit here and say, oh, well, Tiger Woods or, you know, Rory McIlroy. Those are easy names. Who are some guys that you think on the tour are ready to break out? I think that's, you know, not dodging the question at all. I want to see how of the, how the some of the older guys, some of the older guard are going to implement what tournaments they play in and at what time. I agree. You know, and you ask, you know, in years past, Casey, we had a set schedule. We know when the Masters is. We know when the British is. You know, the PGA change sites. You know, U.S. Opens on, you know, so it's Father's Day, you know, stuff like that. So 
we know about the young guys. You know, we know about Dustin Johnson, Jordan Spieth, uh, you know, Victor Hovland out of Oklahoma State. A lot of the young guys, they're ready to go. They're going to play every week that they can. When you get to the majors, it's, it's not about how far you hit it. It's not always about how on you are that week or those four days. A lot of that is about experience because of the pressure. I'm not discounting any of the young guard. Okay. Everyone loves Ricky Fowler. Everyone loves, you know, like I said, all these guys coming out of college. But there's a reason when we look at, at the majors, and that's not even factor in, factoring in the worldwide influence, you know, with the European tour and the, you know, all those sorts of things. There's a reason why if you look at all four majors, you basically have a lot of the same guys in the mix. I'm not saying up there at the lead, but they're within the top 30, top 20, because sure. they have experience. You know, they have experience there. I want to see how they're going to incorporate themselves and to prepare them for the majors. I agree with that one. We know the same. Yeah, but sorry, Casey, go ahead. Uh, well, the next question I was going to have is, is uh, Bryson DeChambeau, you know, after the quarantine, he comes back and he looks like Hulk Hogan. You know, he is big and strong and thick shoulders. And, okay, on one hand, yeah, it's great to be athletic. But on the other hand, golf is a sport that requires so much of your flexibility and different things of that sort. As a guy who looks at swings and analyzes swings, can you be too strong in golf? Don't ask, don't ask Brooke Kepka, Brooks Kepka that. Yeah. I mean, you know, he takes out a driver and just smashes it as hard as he can. I do think there's a part, so much of that depends upon, you know, Augusta is the same course every year. That's the one that does not change, correct? The other three majors, all of the venues change. So it's a bit more predictable on who's going to do well at the Masters because the course is pretty much the same. The temperature can change. The course condition can change, meaning if it's wet, the ball won't roll as much. Maybe the ball doesn't fly as far because it's not going to be as warm or it could be cool. It just depends at that time. The other venues change every year. Getting back to your question, can you be too big and too bucked up? Personally, I believe you can because you still need your flexibility and your range of motion. If you look at a guy like Phil Mickelson, Phil Mickelson is, is now 50 years old. But he is in excellent shape. He is very limber. He is very flexible. We saw in the match he can fly the ball yeah. <laughs> 325 to 330 yards, flying it in the air. That is a long way. At this time, he is probably 25 to 30 yards longer than Tiger is off the tour. How does that relate to other players? He's probably a little bit shorter than Dustin Johnson, maybe Max Homer, you know, guys like that. But Mickelson, for his age, is very long. I don't see Phil playing the Champions Tour because you're going from playing 74 to 7,500 yards to the closest event we have is at Fallen Oak in Biloxi, and it's 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 a good bit below 7,000. He doesn't need to play at that level yet. He still hits the ball well enough. And if you recall, I believe it was last year, VJ Singh was 56 years old and in the final group of a PGA Tour event. So. If you take care of your body and if you can hit the ball with enough velocity, that's what DeChambeau is looking for. That's why he's bulked up. That's why he's gotten to where he is. He took his quarantine time and just basically transformed his body. He was already very unique 
with how he approached the game and how he approached a round of golf, very data-driven and stuff like that. He wanted to get to where he could hit the ball even farther, uh, and he felt that that was a big advantage for him. You know, the days of having, I hate to say it, Ricky Fowler may struggle. Spieth may struggle down the line if the courses continue to get longer and longer and longer. You can look at the trend. Do we have guys that are bombing it, and maybe their short games or their distance control is not as, maybe not as good? What would you rather have, a guy that hits it, his iron game is perfect, or a guy that smashes it off the tee? Or right now, based upon how the courses are set up and how the majors are set up, we know a guy that bombs it, bombs it is better. Yeah, that makes total sense. And, and so here's the question that I, I've been pondering, and, and, and this is something that I, I've been waiting to ask you for a long time. Okay, I'm a beginning player. You know this. We've talked about this before. My equipment is ancient. My equipment is passed down to me. My equipment is from the 80s and early 90s. I'm waiting to get a new set. Um, whenever I finally do get a new set, how big of a difference is that going to make for me? It's, it's a huge difference. Not only is the equipment better, things that people do not consider or think about, like the golf ball, the golf ball is light years ahead of where it was when I was playing in the in the 90s. It's not even close. The things that you're able to do with the equipment, your margin for error is much easier. And you see that with the new guys. They can swing hard. They can swing more out of, open quote, out of their shoes or out of the park, end quote, because the equipment is there to compensate if they don't hit the ball right in the middle of the driver or the club face every time. The way that clubs are, that the equipment is made presently, it basically counteracts if your club face is off a little bit which is basically where the ball is going to initially start. And if your path, which is the way the club moves through impact, if it's a little bit off, the equipment's so good it compensates for that. So back in the old days, when you had older equipment, you needed the face to be where you needed it to be to get the ball going in the proper direction if you're aiming properly. You needed your path of the way the club's moving into the ball to be pretty much spot on you know, for everything to work. Well, nowadays, it can be a little off, the combination of both, but the equipment's so good, it compensates for that. So that's why you see people hitting the ball so far and basically playing a different level of golf. I don't mean as far as in score. The way it's approached is totally different. You know, Brooks Keppel was a guy that likes baseball more than golf. He's up there just smashes in the U.S. Open. You're thinking, how's the guy going to win like that in the U.S. Open, you're supposed to, what's the old saying with the U.S. Open? Fairways and greens. Got to keep it out of the rough, right? He just gets up there and smashes it as far <laughs> as he can. And, it, and he's like, well, if I'm in the rough, I don't care because I'm hitting a wedge and the other guy, you know, and, you know, and another guy's going to be hitting a four iron. So I'll take my wedge out of the rough versus a four iron from the fairway. That's, that's the new approach now. So before we let you go, uh, let's, let's imagine for a second that you know this COVID is going to clear and you guys are going to be able to play without any type of interruptions and you're going to be able to get all the kids back on campus without any type of interruptions. You've got a young team. You've got a lot of guys you're excited about. Tell us about your guys a little bit. 
we're excited to have all of our players coming back, and I'm not going to single out anyone in particular. We had a very, very young team last year. We set, as you saw, school records uh, for our play at Latour, right there in Matthews, for our Latour Intercollegiate. We had school records that we set. We had players individually. It was a total team effort. We had guys shoot low, and then other guys pick up the slack between the three rounds. Um, we're definitely headed in the right direction. Uh, you know, with the facilities that we have now, with our practice area on campus that we have, with us able to have a place like Latour, that is such a gem for this area, and be able to host an intercollegiate event, 15 Division One teams from all over the country that come in. And then we also host an additional one over at Diamond Head. We co-host there with Coach Lorio at UNO. Um, you know, you don't have many universities that do that, much less there aren't any in the South one that do it. None. So I think it, te- I think it speaks volumes for our area. I think it shows a lot of what we do have to offer here. You know, I'm a big positive guy as much as, you know, as, as much as we can be, even in these difficult times. And I think whenever, you know, Athletics is the is not only about the types of things that I'm doing right now, and you know, and you guys do such a great job of covering Nichols and covering you know the high school segments and all the Bayou region. But you know, when you have Division One athletics, it's important. It's important to a region. It's important to an area. It, it, it's a it, it's a good economic engine. It really is, and it's not all about the gate sports. You know. You, you know, tennis teams can have tournaments. Golf teams have multiple tournaments. Track has events as well. So, and the great thing about all of those events is they're sprinkled throughout the year. So when maybe it's not football season or maybe it's not Coach Thibodeau's or Coach Santiago's softball and baseball seasons, it's it's times where the other Olympic sports, if you will, can kind of have events too and get some people down to the Bayou region and kind of show show everyone how things are here. It, have you guys had some of those conversations? Because, I mean, you guys are not a big revenue sport, and you guys need the other sports at the school to, to, to do well. Um, have you guys had any of the conversations of, okay, if football, you know, if, if, if Nichols doesn't go to Tiger Stadium and make that big payday, what may happen? Have you guys talked about that in at all? Are you nervous about that in any way? Um, I, I trust the administration from the top down with Dr. Clune. We'll do whatever we need to do to make things work, regardless of – that one game, because that one game does not make a season. It sure. does not. I'm not going to go down that road, and I and I don't believe in that. You know, um, what I do know is we have a university president that is committed to athletics. Bottom line, and that's the most important thing. We and and I'll speak for myself in particular. I know what the role is, and how important a football team is. I'll listen. I. I've seen the difference. I've seen the difference when the coach before Coach Rebo was here and how poor attendance was. And I see where it is now. And it's night and day. So to take the approach that I'm just going to be centered on golf or the coach will just be centered on tennis or all their individual little things. The only way that it works at a place like Nichols is if we're all pulling in the right direction together the same way. Okay. I enjoy going to football 
I enjoy all sports. I enjoy listening to your show when I'm out at campus Saturday morning doing stuff out at the golf facility. I enjoy listening to all the coaches from the Bayou region that you have on from all the different sports, from football, basketball, baseball, all, all these other things. I'm a fan of that. I don't expect everyone to think, well, I wonder what the golf team is doing today, or, or I expect to have the same following that Coach Rebo has with football, or Coach Clonch or Coach Playtons has with women's basketball. That's not reality. But it doesn't mean that the, that the core that you have or the pride that you take in your job and being a part of something at Nichols, which I am, I'm a part of that. I'm a part of everything that happens in athletics. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't be proud. And I'm very proud of where things are, and I'm very extremely proud of the hire that we've made with JT as our athletics director. That's perfect. Well, look, Coach, thanks so much for the time. We're going to do this again real soon, okay? Thank you, Casey. Always enjoy being on your show. Yes, sir. Take care. That was Nichols golf coach James Schilling doing a great job. As always, it's always a pleasure to spend some time with him. Let's catch a quick commercial break when we get back. A lot of things going on in the world of sports for once. We've got uh, NBA schedules that have been announced. Games are going to be played in the near future. We're going to talk about the NBA, the MLB, WWE, all that and more. It's Casey's Corner Podcast here on LaFoucheGazette.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey, guys, I know it's a commercial break, but it's me again. But I want to tell you guys a big secret. I know how you guys could get the news in Lafouche Parish, the hottest news, all the things that all your friends and all your family members are talking about first before everyone else. How? By getting the Lafouche Gazette app. Go to your app store, get the Lafouche Gazette app today. You'll get push notifications right to your phone anytime anything breaks, anytime anything exciting happens, anytime there's anything going on in Lafouche Parish that people are talking about. We're going to be talking about it and we're going to send it right to your phone. So go to the Lafouche Gazette app, find it on your app store today, download it 100% free, 100% news, 100% local, 100% all the time. Download the Lafouche Gazette app today. Coach James Schilling for his time. He was very gracious with his time, told us some great stories. I want to thank former South Lafouche football coach, current Cecilia football coach Dennis Skeins for his time. It was great to visit with both Nichols Golf and also with Coach Skeins today. I had two great call-in interviews, a wonderful COVID segment, and we hope to cap it off with a successful sports segment here. Um, the NBA is reopening. The NBA has launched their effort to reopen which is not a surprise I mean, that's not anything new we've been talking about that for the last several weeks but what is new is the league has released their schedules for the eight game regular season resumption in the orlando bubble um for the new orleans pelicans they've got their their work cut out for them um and what i mean by that is they've got to do a handful of things uh, to be able to make the postseason, they've got to first finish as the nine seed, which is going to be difficult in its own right because um, there are so many teams competing with them. Portland is right up there. Uh, the Kings are right up there. The Spurs are right up there. So they've got to finish as the nine seed. And then they've also got to stay within four games of the Grizzlies um, 
in the process because if you're you know five games back six games back seven games back they're just going to hand the eight seed in the playoff berth to the actual eight seed so the pelicans have got to beat out all the other teams chasing them for the nine seed and then also keep pace with the memphis grizzlies um, it's not going to be easy, uh, but they do have a little bit of an easier ride than some of the other teams in the bubble, and we'll talk about that uh, here throughout the rest of the segment. The Pelicans are going to open up with what I think are uh, I, they're the two hardest games uh, on in their eight-game schedule, but I think they're also the two most important games in their eight-game schedule against Utah and the Clippers. Um, you're three and a half games back of, of the eight-seed Memphis right now, and you're trying, as we said, to jockey for position with Portland, San Antonio, and the Kings and all that. Um, you can't go 0-2 right out of the gate. You can't lose to Utah. You can't lose to the Clippers. Not both, not consecutive. You can't put yourself behind the eight ball and ask a young team um, to have to win must-win games and to have the pressure of, of being behind everyone else and playing with so much tension right out of the gate. You've got to split at the bare minimum, split those two games, Utah and, and L.A., right out of the shoot if you want to have in my opinion a realistic chance after that the schedule lightens up tremendously and quite frankly you're probably favored to win all six of the remaining games they're going to be taking on the memphis grizzlies then the sacramento kings then the washington wizards then the san antonio spurs then the kings again then the orlando magic wrapping it up um a couple of notes that first that game with the magic won't be easy the magic are pretty good <laughs> especially on the interior that's not going to be a team that zion williamson is going to be able to just bully and and throw around um so they're pretty good and then a couple of notes about the play-in tournament so let's assume for a second that the pelicans or, or portland or the spurs or whoever else does stay within nine games or within four games of memphis for the nine seed um here's how the play-in tournament would work and i wasn't aware of this until a buddy of mine actually schooled me up on this so it's not going to then just be okay winner take all one game the nine seed is going to have to beat the eight seed twice in a row in head-to-head to steal their postseason spot. So they're going to have to win two games, whereas the eight seed is going to have two games to win one. So there is incentive for Memphis to try to stay in that number eight position because they have a better you know, uh, seeding advantage and they would only have to beat the nine seed once to make the postseason. Um so it's going to be exciting. It's going to be entertaining. Of course, we've told you about the situation in the Western Conference in terms of the playing games and the playing tournaments and everything like that. Out in the East, I don't know that there's going to be a playing tournament. We've got, I think, the only competition or the only struggle right now is we've got Brooklyn, who's a half a game ahead of Orlando for the seven seed. Orlando's number eight. Then the Washington Wizards are five and a half games back. So Washington's going to have to really make a lot of hay in those final eight games to position themselves. But if they do, then there's going to be a battle for the eighth seed out in the east where New Jersey and Orlando and New Jersey should have the leg up because Kevin Durant is healthy and should be playing in the Orlando bubble. But because he's a coward who refuses to play unless if his team is loaded to the gills, he is not. He will be sitting out. Um, but I could do an entire show on his cowardice. So Brooklyn will not be uh, a threat to win the championship because their star maximum contract player Though healthy, is not going to play because, oh, bro, my team's not the one seed. But that says a lot about the cowardice in the career of Kevin Durant. But anyway, well, that's, that's another argument for another day. Um, in the West, the Los Angeles Lakers are going to be the one seed. Uh, they've got a five-and-a-half game lead with um, eight games to play. You know, they would have to pretty much lose out. So 
you look at some of the the things in their schedule and realize that they may be kind of slacking off a little bit towards the end of their ride gearing themselves up for the playoffs so if you have the lakers on your schedule late you might have an advantage uh their final four games are houston indiana denver and sacramento Sacramento, one of the teams chasing that nine seed. If they are in a position where they're playing to try to compete with New Orleans or Portland or whoever else, they've got the Lakers late. Um, After that seed may be locked up already, uh, that could potentially be a huge advantage. The Rockets, my team of interest, I think that their schedule is okay. It's manageable. But they're the only team in the entire NBA that has to face both number one seeds in the eight games. They've got to play the Lakers and the Bucks both, um, which is interesting. But I think the rest of their schedule is pretty manageable. They play Dallas, Milwaukee, Portland, Lakers, Kings, Spurs, Pacers, 76ers. That's Houston's ride. So a couple of notes about the NBA bubble. Um, first off, I like it a lot. The idea that there's going to be basketball again is, is tremendous. Uh, but here's what I don't like, okay? Because whenever this starts back, it's going to start back on July 30th. And, and then from there, it's going to be balls to the walls, full steam ahead. You know, every day there's going to be games from sun up to sundown. Literally. Like, usually you have to wait until 6 or 7 o'clock at night for the NBA games to start. No, this is going to be balls to the walls, sun up to sundown, meaning that the first games will tip off at noon, the last games will tip off at 8 or 9 or so. And from cover to cover, we're going to have basketball all day long which I think is great. Here's what I don't think is great. Not every game is going to be on TV. Um, I, I don't understand this, and I understand that it probably has to do with TV deals and, and television contracts and all things that I don't get and I'll, I'll never understand fully. So I apologize in advance for my ignorance on the topic. Um, but, man, there's nothing on television right now. Even the soap operas are playing reruns. We're about to have to. We're so far back into the reruns that we're probably about to have to get to Bob Barker hosting The Price is Right again. That's how far back into the reruns we are. There is nothing on television right now. Why can't every one of these games be broadcast? And I get that some of it has to do with local television deals. So, you know, Fox Sports New Orleans is going to have to get a certain amount of these games and. You know, whatever it may be, Fox Sports Houston's going to have to get a certain amount of the Rockets game so they can't all be on national TV. But I just feel like there was an opportunity to maybe revise or tweak or do something to ease back into this to where everyone could get every piece of the pie. It doesn't affect me in the Gisclair household. I have NBA League Pass. I'm not going to miss a single one of these games. Addy, if you're listening to the podcast, I apologize in advance. In August, I'm not going to be productive. I'm just not. <laughs> and if the Rockets make it deep into the postseason in mid-September and October, I'm really not going to be productive. Um, but my kidding aside, um, I just think that there was a situation where they could post monster numbers throughout the day and really own the market. And the fact that they're being held back by local TV deals, I think, is unfortunate. But again, I don't know anything about those contracts. So that just may be the way that it has to be. Um, the play is going to resume on July the 30th. Uh, I've been vocal about I think that's a little bit too late, but whatever. Um, 
And in theory, the NBA should be the, the, the safest sport to return. In theory, there should not be a single hiccup here. In theory, this should go off without a hitch. No one should test positive, And we should be able to live happily ever after. Because to get into the Disney World bubble, you're going to have to test negative. Your symptoms are going to be checked daily. And once you're in the Disney World bubble, you cannot leave. Once you leave, you've got to quarantine for two weeks to get back in. So... In theory, there should not be a single solitary issue about how this goes off, and we should have a smooth ride. Now, with coronavirus being the way that it is, has there been anything about COVID-19 that's been un- that's been completely predictable? The only thing that's been predictable is that it's been completely unpredictable, so i got a feeling there are going to be some issues. Um, but this, on paper at least, should be the safest way to do it. Everybody's going to be isolated and everyone's going to be around other people who do not have the virus, so it should not spread. And if it does, it shouldn't spread rapidly because of some of the things that they're doing. Now, that's NBA. MLB has finalized their plan, and we've talked about this on and off here on the podcast. They're going to be doing a 60-game schedule, and we've learned more about their schedule here in recent days. So let's say you're a fan of the Astros. I know there are a lot of fans of the Astros here. There are a lot of fans of that team that cheated and should have had to forfeit their World Series title. So we'll talk about them uh, in this segment. Let's say you're an Astros fan. Um, The Astros, like every other team in the MLB, are going to have to play all of their divisional opponents several times as part of the 60-game schedule. So every team plays their own divisional opponents X amount of times. It's something like 10 times each. So they would end up being 40 games. So, and I'm guessing. And maybe 12 times each. It's whatever it may be. And then from there, you play your remaining games against the same team in the opposite division. So uh, on the, from the perspective of the Astros, again, using them as an example, you play all your AL West opponents. Then you also will be matched up and paired with the NL West. So then you have to play the Dodgers and the Giants and the D-backs and the Rockies and all that. So that's the way the MLB is going to operate, 60 games, postseason, and then World Series. I'm confident about the NBA's plan. I'm not confident about the MLB's plan. I think the MLB's plan is going to be a nightmare, and I think the MLB's plan is going to be riddled with setbacks, riddled with issues, riddled with players contracting COVID-19, and I think that it may end up being embarrassing to the sport at how this is all going to operate for several reasons. For one, there's no bubble. For one, the players are going to be living in their own houses. They're going to be free to go to restaurants. They're going to be free to go to bars. They're going to be free to do whatever they got to do. For two, there's travel involved. The Braves are going to be playing home games at their home park, but they're also going to be playing road games at Nationals Park, road games at New York you know, against the Mets and the Nationals, road games against the Toronto Blue Jays and the New York Yankees and you know whatever it may be, so on and so forth, and vice versa. Everybody else is going to have to come into Atlanta as well. That's one thing I don't like. I, I don't like the, the lack of isolation amongst the players. I also don't like the fact that there's going to be different rules and different standards and different agendas based on the city that you're in. So, for instance, Atlanta, and again, I'm just using them as an example. I don't know what the state of Georgia's plans are. But let's say Atlanta, their governor uh, says, uh, you know, the Georgia's governor, let's say he says, um, no fans in the stands, okay? So then the Braves would not be able to operate with fans in the stands. But then let's say they got to go and play the Miami Marlins, and Florida's governor, DeSantis, says, um, you know, we can have fans in the stands. So then you'd be playing games 
with fans in Miami. Now, granted, <laughs> that that's uh, maybe a bad example because Miami baseball has been socially distancing for the last 25 years. There wouldn't be fans in the stands anyway. Um, but different example. Let's use Texas again. Let's go back to the Astros. Maybe the Astros will be allowed fans in the stands in Houston and when they go and play Texas. Um, but maybe there won't be when they got to go play Oakland. And like, I guess what I'm trying to say is that at Disney World with the NBA, you know who every player is going to be interacting with. You know where those people that they've been interacting with are coming from and what they've been doing with baseball. We have no idea. We don't know, you know, if Freddie Freeman goes back home after a game and orders a pizza. We don't know if the Domino's delivery driver who touched his pizza has COVID. We don't know if Freddie Freeman in between, you know, a homestand goes to Target to buy milk for his family. We don't know if he rubs shoulders with somebody at Target who has COVID. Um, I think this plan is flawed. I think this plan is, this plan is problematic. And I think that this plan is more expensive for baseball than what it needs to be. They have, whereas the NBA is going to be playing the rest of their season in two gyms in Orlando, the MLB could have isolated their teams, American League, National League, or you know, region by region, however they would have wanted to do it. They could have isolated their teams, some of them in Florida, some of them in Arizona, just like they do AKA every single other year for spring training. They could have isolated the teams in areas of the country and they could have played their 60 games that way and limited travel, limited cost, and I think created a bubble that could have worked. Um, what they're doing here, I don't think is going to work. Now, whenever I say doesn't think it's going to work, I don't think a player is going to die. I don't think a player is going to be hospitalized. I think professional athletes, by and large, are are not in danger. I think that they've got trained lungs and I think that they're going to be okay health-wise. Um, but I think that it's going to be a situation where the luckiest team is going to be the team that's going to end up winning um, because, you know, this big star player, this big ace pitcher may have to miss a couple of weeks unexpectedly. Uh, you know, this four-hole hitter, this you know star outfielder may have to miss a couple of weeks unexpectedly because there are going to be people who are going to contract this virus. And whenever you have an already shortened sample, usually a 162-game sport, now shrunk down to 60, you open yourself up to, for some fluky things to happen, and then you add the element of a pandemic virus onto that. I think it's going to be a very fluky season, and I think that there are going to be some embarrassing things that are going to happen. I am looking forward to watching it. I'm admittedly going to watch every one of the Braves games, no matter who's playing, um, but I think that there's there's a potential for a lot of craziness to, to take place. PGA Tour. Talk some PGA Tour, then we're going to talk some WWE, then we're going to wrap up. Um, I got to brag, you know, I've been hard on myself because my golf picks have sucked. <laughs> Simply put, I've given picks for the last two tournaments, and they've sucked badly. Um, this week, we're kind of cooking with grease a little bit, guys. We, we're kind of on to something. We, every week, we pick a shark, a sleeper, and a champion. The shark is the, the name brand player that we think is going to play well. The sleeper is a guy that we think is going to come out of nowhere and kind of surprise people. And then we pick a champion. Usually, you know, I don't have anybody even anywhere near the leaderboard. This week, I've got all three of them that are in contention. My shark this week was Rory McIlroy. He started the day in the top five. Now, he kind of tailed off, only shot one under par. He's 10 under, eight shots back. He's probably not going to win, but he's just a couple of shots away from being in the top five. So, Rory is contending. 
my sleeper, I killed it. Kevin Na. I said Kevin Na was my sleeper. Kevin Na is 13 under par. He's tied for fifth. He's five shots back. He's in contention to win tomorrow and Sunday. My champion, Bryson DeChambeau, he's in contention to win. He's 13 under par. He's five shots back. Everybody's chasing Brendan Todd, who was on fire today. Shot a nine under par, 61. Brendan Todd leads Dustin Johnson by two shots. Dustin Johnson also shot a 61. Uh, today was a day where... Uh, it was it was literally moving day. The, the guys that were kind of in the middle were the ones that made the surge up to the top. And some of the guys that were in the lead groups, Will Garden entered the day in the lead. He shot one over par, didn't play well. Phil Mickelson was in the lead group, shot one over par, didn't play well. Rory McIlroy was near the top, shot one under par, didn't play well. So the lead groups didn't play well. The guys that got on the, cor the course early in the morning played beautifully and surged themselves into that top position. Now, can they handle the pressure tomorrow? That remains to be seen. Uh, Brendan Todd's a good, solid player. He's been around a while. We know Dustin Johnson's one of the best players in the world. Um, but there are some big names nipping at the heels. DeChambeau, a couple of shots back. Kevin Nas, a good player. Abraham Answer. I actually almost picked Abraham Answer to win this week. He's six shots back, 12 under par. And then you got Mickelson trailing behind, at, you know, six shots back also at 12 under par. So it's going to be an exciting Sunday of golf. That is over. In the Northeast, that's in Cromwell, Connecticut, the Travelers Championship. Um, they kind of moved their round up today. I was looking forward to watching a Saturday afternoon of golf, and then I realized when I was doing my Saturday morning radio show, oh, crap, the round's over <laughs> as they moved the tee times up to avoid the rain. Uh, I'm going to check in tonight. Hopefully, they'll be able to play at the normal times on Sunday so we can enjoy a wonderful Sunday. So we're going to now finish out the show talking some WWE. If you're not a wrestling fan, go ahead, hit the stop button on your phone, put the, the headsets down. There's not anything left in this show for you. So if you're not a wrestling fan, um, bear with us. The next oh, uh, five, ten minutes or so are going to be wrestling talk and, and just catch back up with us next week. WWE is building towards extreme rules now. Since we last spoke, they've added a sub-tag to the Extreme Rules pay-per-view. It's now going to be called The Horror Show. I don't know if that's because the booking is a horror show so far, or if it's to play on the uh, one of the main events, probably the main event, which we'll touch on in just a second. Um, but Extreme Rules The Horror Show, that's what we're building towards. That's going to be coming up in the next couple of weeks, uh, July 19th in Orlando at the Performance Center. Uh, we're already towards the end of June, so we've just got a couple of Raws and a couple of SmackDowns until we get to that point. Um, the matches so far that have been announced, there are four. We're not going to touch on the ones that we've already touched on. We talked, well, we're going to touch on them briefly. Drew McIntyre and Dolph Ziggler, I'll give you my thoughts on that. I think it's a waste of time. I think it's going to be a good match, a good 15 minute match, solid match. McIntyre is going to go over Ziggler. Talked about Asuka and Sasha Banks, and I think that's going to be. Good wrestling for one, good story for two, and I think that that one has a potential to maybe steal the show a little bit. Um, now, number three, Bailey against Nikki Cross. That'll be for the SmackDown Women's Championship. Um, so Bailey and Nikki Cross. Nikki Cross won, you know, a triple threat or fatal four way last night on SmackDown to earn her right into that. Um, I don't have any, you know, negative thoughts, I guess, but I don't have any particular positive thoughts either. That's whatever. Nikki Cross is. Just kind of bleh. Uh, she's okay, but she's also far and away the second part of her tag team. Uh, Alexa Bliss is far and away the better member of that group or that duo. 
Um, do I think that that'll be one where the title changes hands? No, I don't. Um, but you know, it, I mean, it, I don't have negative feelings about it. I think it'll be entertaining. So I'm curious to see what happens in that match. Now, the reason why the pay-per-view now it was this was announced on Thursday and the match hadn't yet been announced and we were all kind of confused. It's Extreme Rules of the Horror Show. And we were all wondering in our heads, why is this called the Horror Show? What in the hell are they doing? We found out last night. Braun Strowman is going to be taking on Bray Wyatt in a Wyatt Swamp fight. Um, this is going to be a non-title match, which in my opinion, why do it uh, if it's going to be a non-title match? But I'm curious to see what in the hell a Wyatt Swamp fight is going to be. Um, it looks like Bray Wyatt is going to be ditching his Firefly Funhouse uh, you know, persona and will be going back to the old Wyatt family gimmick for this. And if I had to guess based on what we know so far of how this feud is going and Wyatt Swamp Fight, if I had to guess this is going to be one of those quote-unquote movie matches where heavily produced, heavily you know, studio taped and cut and edited and music added and like we saw at WrestleMania, like we saw at Money in the Bank, I got a feeling it's going to be another one of those. Um, I think Bray Wyatt is a character that could pull that off. I think Braun Strowman is a character who could pull that off. They're both kind of comic book character you know, gimmicks anyway. Um, so I'm not as opposed to immediately saying, no, this is going to be bad. I'm curious. It may be pretty good. So they've caught my eye. I guess my only gripe would be why not put the championship on the line? Why not make it really mean something? That tells me, though, that it's probably not even going to be wrestling at all. It may end up being more like the Bray Wyatt and John Cena thing from WrestleMania where it's kind of um, more of a of a, uh, a soliloquy kind of thing than, than a wrestling match. So I'm curious to see. Another thing that I'm curious to see is I'm curious to see what they do with Randy Orton. I think they're building towards Randy Orton versus Big Show at the pay-per-view. Um, but maybe we get that match beforehand on Raw, so I'm not sure fully. But they're doing some good things, man. They're, they're, they're having some bad moments. They're having some good moments. But I understand that they're dealing with so much. I mean, they're starting to have people on their roster that are starting to test positive, And they're filming without fans. And they've got a lot of obstacles in their way. So we hope that we could get wrestling back to where it needs to be. Because I think the product is better now than what it was three months ago. I think the product is better now than it was six months ago. And quite frankly, quite honestly, I think the product's better now than it's been in quite some time. It's just unfortunate that we're at a time in the world that not very many people are going to be able to see it. Um, we've got some UFC tonight. I'm going to make a pick or two on the main event. Let me pull up the card real quick. MMA schedule results. We've got UFC fight night tonight. Look, let's give credit to the UFC, man. Like I'm, I'm usually pretty hard on the UFC. I, I, I I'm more of a boxing guy. I, I don't like some of the action in UFC. I think at, at times it tends to be boring. Um, but at a time where you know the the country needed something, they've delivered, man. Like they are, there's a there's a fight every single weekend, man. Like they're there's they're active. They're doing a lot of things. Tonight, the main event, Dustin Poirier is going to be taking on Dan Hooker in a lightweight bout. Poirier is a big favorite. Uh, Poirier is 25-6. and six. He's a named guy in the lightweight division, uh, taking on Dan Hooker, a little bit of a lesser known. Um, if i got to make a pick, I'm going to go Poirier in that one. Um, one guy I want to see tonight, Sean Woodson, a prospect. 
in the UFC. He's going to be taking on a journeyman, Juliana Rosa. That'll be the first match on the main card, a catchweight bout. I hear a lot of big things about Sean Woodson. I'm looking forward to seeing him potentially stop Juliana Rosa, keep that momentum going. And then another big fight tonight, a fight that may steal the show. Brandon Allen, 14-3. and He's rising up the ranks pretty quickly in the middleweight division. He's taking on Kyle Dawkins, who's 9-0. and uh, but Dawkins is actually a big underdog in that bout because of the career arc of Brandon Allen. So that's one that I'm going to be keeping an eye on as well. Good night of fights. If anybody likes to watch UFC, more power to you. And again, kudos to them because they've delivered uh, big time. During the stoppage, they never slowed down. And they've kept their fighters safe at that. So they've been kind of leading by example and showing people that it can be done and it can safely be done. And that's the most important thing at our time in the world. So I want to thank you guys for listening, first and foremost, right out of the gate. Thanks for listening. Um, we see statistics and analytics. We see our listenership is growing, and it's growing tremendously. It's growing exponentially. Every show is generating more listeners than the one before it. So we're starting to get an audience that is being loyal, for one, but is also telling their friends for two, which is even better. Uh, please tell your friends about us. If you think that we're covering things that that your friends would enjoy, let them know. Uh, Subscribe on iTunes. Find us on iTunes. Hit the subscribe button. Once you do that, you're freed from having to do any work the rest of the way. We're going to then do all the work from here on in. The episodes will be sent straight to your phone. You could download them or you could listen at your convenience. I can't tell you how many screenshots I get from people who are listening to and from work. If you commute to Fouchon every day, if you commute to Homa every day, if you commute to Thibodeau every day, You've got an hour of idle time every single day to and from that you're listening to music, you're calling people and catching up, reconnecting. Well, you can reconnect with what's going on in the world because you guys know me by now. If I'm talking about it in my podcast, it's going to be based on things that are being told to me by people in the community. And I'm not going to BS you. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to tell it to you like it is. The questions that we do in our Q&As are real questions from real people. And it's the real things that people are talking about in our community and uh, we're going to keep this thing rolling. We're getting closer to the fall. I don't know what the fall is going to look like, but I know we're going to have some things going on, and we're going to keep it rolling, and we're going to keep it rolling in high gear all the way until we could get this virus licked and we could get back to life as normal. So you guys have a great rest of the weekend. If you've got uh, allergies like myself, stay out of the Saharan dust. I'm going to be paying for recording outside tonight. I'm going to be sneezing and coughing. I promise you, though, I don't have COVID, at least... Hopefully not anytime in the in the near future. Um, but you guys have a great weekend. Have a great early portion of the week. If you're going and popping fireworks and everything, socially distanced, be safe. I don't want to have to write about any anybody blowing up their hands or their arms or their legs. Too much is going on in the world right now. Be safe. Don't be silly. And if you're enjoying some 4th of July festivities, don't drink and drive, all that good stuff. And the most important thing I'm going to tell you today, I'm going to save the most important thing for last. We've got an election coming up, y'all. District 54, state representative race. I'm not going to endorse anybody. Um, That's not me. That's not who I am. But what I am going to endorse is the idea of exercising your right to vote. I don't give a rat's patoot who you vote for, but vote for somebody. Go and exercise your right. Go and vote for one of those six men who are running to represent our area. All six of them are qualified in their own ways. Go vote. There are also some school board elections and some other things on on the ballot. 
exercise your right to vote because if you don't, you have no room to be on Facebook bitching and complaining about the things that are going on in the world. So I'm going to sign off here. Kudos to everybody for listening. Have a great weekend, blessed week, all that good stuff. Love you guys so much. We'll be back in the middle of next week with another laundry list of guests, including Jaron Martin with Lafouche Parish Schools. Mr. Martin is going to talk about what school reopening in Lafouche Parish is going to look like. So we'll talk about that next week. Big week ahead. You guys uh, recharge yourselves and have a great weekend. Adios.